0: Very good. Okay. You've turned there, no doubt. Now it's John 18. I'm going to read the first 27 verses this morning. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to the, said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath." Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. And those who have heard me, what I said to them, they know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is, it how, is, this, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered, If what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied him. And at once the rooster crowed. Oftentimes, if you watch boxing at all, boxers sometimes are referred to, if you're a bad one, as having a glass jaw. Glass is easy to break, and so the metaphor makes a lot of sense. Just emptying the dishwasher or, uh, or playing baseball in the backyard can end in broken glass really easily. And a boxer who has a glass jaw can't take a punch. That's what it means. He can't take a punch. He gets knocked out easily. Maybe he has bad technique, or he has poor conditioning, or has one had one too many concussions in the past. On the other hand, if you can really take a punch, you're said to have an iron jaw. How does iron compare to glass? So that's a simple question. Iron is a lot stronger than glass. It's a lot less fragile. It holds up a lot better when the punches start to fly. Is it better to have a glass jaw or an iron jaw? And in boxing, an iron jaw every day of the week. If you're constantly getting knocked out, you're a pretty bad, you're a pretty bad boxer. The scripture reading this morning that Amber read came from Isaiah, and it's a prophetic text that finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus. This prophetic text uh, in verse 7 of what Amber read this morning, Isaiah writes, Therefore. I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. A face like a flint is a similar metaphor to an iron jaw. The punches are coming, but the jaw isn't glass. Instead, the jaw is iron. It's a face like a flint. It's shameful to get knocked out in a heavyweight fight, but the strength to endure haymakers coming your way in a heavyweight fight Holds that shame at bay. In our text this morning, again, this is a direct prophetic uh, fulfillment by Jesus. He has a face like a flint. He's facing his enemy now. The time has come. Up until this point, as we've explored the second half of John's gospel, we've seen Jesus launch into this heavy um, instructional portion as he's been with his disciples in the upper room. And over the course of the last four times we've been in John's gospel, we've looked at John 17, and this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's been praying. So much of what we've seen all the way from chapter 12, at least part of chapter 12 through now, through chapter 17, is heavily, uh, heavily uh, instructional. It's given to us so that we might better know what Jesus came to do, intends to do, and what that means for us, what it meant specifically for his disciples, than what it means for us as a result. Now, as we get to chapter 18, we enter into a more narrative portion. What we mean is we're seeing events unfold, a historical account of what transpired after Jesus prayed the high priestly prayer. And with a face like Flint. Everything that Jesus has said, everything that he told his disciples would come to pass back in chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and prayed in 17, now are in fact coming to pass. The final act is upon us and things begin to unfold. He makes his way to the garden, we're told, right at the beginning of chapter 18. And throughout these 27 verses, uh, there's sort of a comparison that we can make between the three primary characters that we see uh, given to us and Jesus himself. We see Jesus interacting with, uh, with Judas. We see Jesus in the band of soldiers and the officers, the Jewish officers that come along with him to arrest Jesus. We see Jesus interacting uh, with the high priest, or at least uh, the high priest's father-in-law, Annas, and then we see uh, the interaction, albeit separate, an interaction with Peter, as Jesus has prophesied, said directly that Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crowed, and we see that interaction coming to fruition in this in this passage. So these three men, uh, Judas, Annas, and Peter are the in reference to Jesus those 3 will guide our time together we'll explore how the narrative center, narrative centers around these 3 men and in each of these instances we see 3 haymakers coming for Jesus how will Jesus respond we see betrayal in Judas we see corruption in Annas and we see denial in Peter. How will Jesus respond in the face of these three difficulties, in the face of these three hardships, these curveballs, these haymakers? The first thing that we see in this text in verses 1 through 11 is the betrayal of Judas. Now we're told explicitly in verse 5, that Judas is a betrayer. At the second half of verse 5, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. Now, you remember this scene in the last supper, we have to always go back to chapter 13. All the way back in chapter 13, Jesus confirms that he is aware of the betrayal that's coming his way. He's aware of the fact that, that Judas is going to betray him. And and now, this is coming to Russia. If you turn in your Bible back to John chapter 13, I would encourage you to go there with me. So just a couple pages in reverse. And in verse 21, this scene unfolds. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him and asked Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought, because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So Jesus sees this coming, and Judas, who had left the table in chapter 13 and was absent for all of the instruction in chapters 14, 15, 16, and then the high priestly prayer in 17, now reappears on the scene at the beginning of chapter 18. And he comes with a band of soldiers and uh, from the chief priests, we're told, and the Pharisees. And they come fully armed and they're ready for a fight. But Jesus' face is set like a flint. He is fully prepared for this betrayal and is ready to absorb the punch. So if we consider another passage from Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 54, 16 and 17. He writes, Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals, and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravenger to destroy. No weapon that is formed against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. Jesus is fulfilling these words in their they're seeing as well. Lanterns and torches and weapons are what the, brand, the, the band of soldiers bring. And they are prepared for a physical fight. But Jesus doesn't need weapons. This is one of the most amazing scenes in the gospel. One of the most amazing scenes in the gospel because here we bear witness to the fact that Jesus's words are enough to show who he truly is. Jesus' simple words, I am he, are enough to show who he truly is. He says, I, when they say uh, Jesus of Nazareth, when they say to the question, whom do you seek? And they say Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus says, I am he. This is enough to drive back the line this band of soldiers. Now, because you're relatively familiar with this scene, if you spent time in church, if you grew up in church and you went to Sunday school on a Sunday morning or vacation Bible school and you talked about this scene in particular, you probably saw some drawing of some a couple of people coming with Judas and then a couple more people in the background. But I want I want you to get in your head what's actually happening here. The men That Jesus says this to and fall down. These aren't a bunch of expendables. These are likely Roman soldiers trained for battle. It's not a bunch of unskilled, undisciplined, flabby militia men. These are soldiers, Romans, in Jerusalem, sent there from Rome as a garrison during the Passover feast. because. During the Passover, Jewish people from all over the region would come and descend upon Jerusalem and the population would explode for a a period of time. And in that time, religious upstarts, people who wanted to stir the pot religiously would come in and oftentimes uh, start physical uprising. These guys are ready for action. They've been put there by their Roman overlords, in order to ensure that men like Jesus don't stir up the people and cause a a serious scene in Jerusalem. During the Passover, religious tensions would run hot, and the Romans were there to ensure that nothing got out of hand. They were to keep the peace when the Jews from all over the region would travel to Jerusalem for the feast. And don't think this is a small number of guys either. Again, if you open up your storybook Bible, the picture might just have two or three people walking in with Judas. But the term band of soldiers was often used to indicate one-tenth of a legion. One-tenth of a legion of soldiers. A legion is 6,000 soldiers. So, uh, one-tenth of that is six hundred. Now, sometimes uh, a band of soldiers would also refer to a smaller unit, a portion of that unit. But there were no less than 60 soldiers, probably more like 120, as many as 600 that came along with Judas. This is not a little group of people. This is a large group of people. And they were foaming at the mouth, ready to squash some insurrection. That's what's happening here. We have to put some of these images out of our mind and sometimes unlearn the things that we've learned. Not a couple of soldiers and a few guys with the torches. We're talking about a big group, a large group of highly trained fighting men who are stationed in Jerusalem to squash religious unrest. And you can imagine they're just hanging out Wherever, and they get the call, and they're like, "Finally, some action." This wasn't a late night run to the grocery store; it was go time. These soldiers dressed for action, probably a mini- minimum, again of sixty of them, and they walk into this garden, find a one guy with another eleven guys, and then they find themselves flat on their backs. What happened? The one who created the smith, who hammered out all the swords that were in their hands, the one who created each and every one of them, who knit them together in their mother's wombs. These soldiers stood in front of the man who created them. And the weapons they held meant to bring an upstart religious rabble rouser to an end could not guard against three simple words I am he. The power that stood behind creation of all things now stood before them, and like Isaiah writes, no weapon formed against him. Could succeed. All this hullabaloo happens, and guess who? Peter uh, gets a bit of a burst of adrenaline, <laughs> pulls out his sword. Witnessing the power of Jesus, he gets feisty. He grabs his sword and cuts off the high priest's servant's ear. No doubt Peter thinks in this way, he thinks, We could take these guys, I saw what just happened. I'm beginning to understand better who this Jesus is and what I just saw was three words knock down a big group of highly trained guys. Let's go. His brash enthusiasm doesn't carry over very far though as we'll see in just a couple minutes. But this is the scene that's set. Jesus then says to Peter, put your sword into its sheath shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus knows full well what he must do. He lays his life down willingly. No one takes it from him. And his face is set like a flint. His jaw is one of iron. He won't be be deterred from the present course that he is on. Not by the betrayal of a traitorous friend. This betrayal doesn't rattle Jesus. In verse 4, we're told, back in verse 4 of chapter 18, we're told that Jesus knew all that would happen. Then Jesus knowing all that would happen to him. And then verse 11, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? All that the Father has given to Jesus to accomplish, he will. He will accomplish. He will not be knocked off course. What Jesus goes to do cannot be disrupted by the betrayal of a traitorous friend. The second scene, though, that begins to unfold here starts in verse 12. This band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews then arrest Jesus and bind him and they take him to Annas. Now, Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who is the current high priest, and Jesus brought before him. Now, Annas did previously serve. This is an interesting scene. And we begin to see how messy the Jewish religious leadership has gotten because uh, because Annas had previously served as the high priest, but the Romans who were occupying Jerusalem had stripped him of that title in 15 AD. And because of Jewish tradition, there would have been the question over the legitimacy of the Romans to do this. Could they actually strip our high priest of his title? Could our Roman overlords actually do this? The role The role of high priest is one that is passed down through family line, and it was a four-life appointment. So this guy is the high priest. And so it makes sense that the Jewish officials would bring Jesus before Annas because there certainly would have been a subset of the Jewish community who thought Annas is still the guy. The Romans don't have authority to pull this title. based on what what God's law says. So at least Annas retained some serious influence. And many would have likely considered him to be the true high priest, instead of his son-in-law Caiaphas, who is in technicality the high priest. If there were any questions from earlier in the Gospel of John, again, now we can fully glean that the religious leadership is a mess, and things are all in disarray. And the corruption comes in full view if you look down the page to verse 19. And in verses 19 through 24, we can see just how these men are corrupt. They resist the truth. They twist reality for the sake of retaining their power. They're concerned about Jesus because so many men and women have begun to follow him. So many men and women have, have, have gone after him, listened to his teaching, and begun following him around the countryside. And so the line of questioning that John writes about is regarding Jesus' disciples and his teaching. If you look in verse 20, or verse 19, excuse me, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Well, this is not hidden. And Jesus says that. This is not hidden from from them. Look at how Jesus responds. He says, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Jesus hadn't hidden his message. But rather that they confront Jesus in the synagogues, in the temples, they, like cowards who are corrupt, who act only to retain their power, wait for the cover of night, and bring Jesus onto their turf. And because of his answer, they strike Jesus. They strike Jesus. Again, highlighting this corruption. Jesus says, if what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And of course, no one can give any reason to any wrong. And again, in Isaiah 54, 7, And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. Jesus quickly refutes the corruption. But no answer is given. They simply bind at Jesus and send him off to Caiaphas. But the corruption of Annas does not rattle Jesus. He's a face set like a flint. And what Jesus goes to do cannot be disrupted by the corruption of the religious leadership. He cannot be deterred. The third contrast we see here is the denial by Peter. And again, this is Jesus, this is separate. This is happening separately from this, this uh this interrogation that's happening of Jesus in verses 19 through 24. And we see the first denial happen in verses 15 through 18, and then the second and third coming through in 25 through 27. And again, we knew all all knew this was coming based on what Jesus says in chapter 13. Again, earlier in the chapter, uh Judas is uh, is said that is said that Jesus, Judas will betray Jesus, but in thirty seven and thirty eight in chapter thirteen, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Just a moment ago, against all odds, Peter drew his sword, ready to give it all. And now, fear grips him. And the denials that Jesus said would come, come in quick succession. The first denial in verse 17, there's a progression here. You should see this progression unfold through the individuals who confront and ask Peter questions about his discipleship, about being a disciple of Jesus, and and the severity. The first denial in verse 17 comes in response to a servant girl. Now, this is a servant girl. A woman in ancient culture would have been unable to give any credible testimony in court, so he can say pretty much whatever to this little girl. And a child, equally, would have had no credibility at all. And so Peter's denial comes quickly. What does it matter? She says, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I'm not. Easy. The second denial comes around the fire where Peter is warming himself. A group of people question if he's one of the disciples. Some of these people would have been credible witnesses, but just as the servant girl, the question is simply exploratory. You also are not one of his disciples, are you? Again, a simple question that's just, hey, who are you? Are you one of his disciples? No. I am not. But the third one, the heat gets turned up. This is a servant of the high priest, a relative of the the victim of Peter's ear-chopping incident. He questions Peter. Did I not see you in the garden with him? Maybe this servant didn't get a good look at Peter, but the question is far more directed. Still, Peter's denial comes quickly, fulfilling Jesus' words to him in chapter 13. And punctuated then by the rooster's crow. Bound, Jesus is being shuffled now from Annas to Caiaphas. And Jesus had told Peter these three denials were coming. Jesus full well knew what was happening with Peter. But despite knowing full well exactly what was happening with Peter, these three denials that Peter Peter gives. Don't rattle Jesus. His face is set like a flint. What Jesus goes to do cannot be disrupted by the fall of a dear friend and disciple. He will not be deterred. The betrayal of a traitorous friend, the corruption of the religious leadership, The fall of a dear disciple, and it all seems to be coming unraveled. Friends, there is a weight to this narrative, a weight that you should feel when you read it. Could Jesus still accomplish what he set out to do? Could Jesus get to where he was intended to go? Would this betrayal, would the corruption, would the the denials knock him off his course. Of course, we know how the next three and a half chapters unfold. But friends, when you read chapter 18, read it through the lens, the eyes of the disciples. The eyes of those who follow Jesus closely for his ministry here on earth. It's all coming undone. It's all coming unravel. Consider the weight and the hopelessness that Jesus' disciples would have felt in these moments. What is happening? Everything that we gave our lives to is now proving to be proving to be flimsy. But we Who know the end of the story can consider some final things. Some things that we are meant to learn by knowing the end of the story, but also contrasting these individuals, Judas and Annas and Peter with Jesus. And the first thing is this. I want you to notice that Jesus remains the good shepherd even in the midst of betrayal. If you look at verse 8 in chapter 18, Jesus says this. His concern isn't primarily even in this moment for himself, but for the sheep that he is a shepherd to. He says, so if you seek me, let these men go. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Jesus is concerned with the well-being of his disciples, even when his life is clearly being threatened. And we find ourselves, we often, you and I, find ourselves in negative circumstances in our natural inclination when experiencing something like Jesus experiences here in a betrayal, to turn inward. Suffering and difficulty and trials usually cause us to become myopic, to become nearsighted, to only see our stuff right in front of us, and we can't get out of our own heads. Looking inward, going into self-preservation mode. But this is not what Jesus does at all. In this moment, in verse 8, he shows great concern to his disciples. And Jesus Christ, friends, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the good shepherd when being betrayed by a friend. He does not become something else. Judas turns traitor, Jesus remains the same, the good shepherd. Friends, we often want to suspend who we are in the middle of tough life circumstances. We want to make excuses and excuse ourselves, even in our apologies to those who we love. We say, I wasn't myself in this moment because I've endured loss. My mind wasn't right because I had a really difficult day at work. The kids were acting up. I was tired. I was hungry. But we should take note of Jesus here. In this scene, Judas is committing, bar none, the greatest betrayal in human history. And Jesus doesn't waver. Jesus doesn't say, I got to suspend the good shepherd part. He shepherds the flock perfectly. And of those the Father gave Jesus, he lost not one. Not one the Father has given him has ever been lost. You may be here this morning and you may be thinking to yourself, I'm small potatoes. I'm going to get lost in the shuffle. I live in Jamestown, North Dakota in 2023. What mind does Jesus pay to me? Friends, He is not lost one. The Father has given to Him. He is the Good Shepherd. Always. Your circumstances don't change Him. No matter what happens in all of creation, Large-scale war, oppression, injustice, corruption, no matter what, none of it can cause Jesus to lose any that the Father has given to him. And so with his face set like a flint, fully realizing who he is in this moment, he shows his concern as the good shepherd for those who the Father gave to him in the garden. Notice that Jesus remains the good shepherd, even in the midst of betrayal. And then notice that Jesus remains the truth, even when up against corruption. And the corruption of Annas and the willingness to look past truth. When Jesus speaks truth and he says, if I've spoken wrong, bear witness to the wrong. But if I said what is right, why would you strike me? the willingness to look past truth and to twist it, seen in Ennis, does not deter Jesus again. It does not cause Jesus to compromise. Friends, we can ask ourselves this question. Are we willing to stand fully for the truth even when there are those around us who twist it? Or deny it? Sometimes we are tempted to Compromise, to dumb down, to leave out key pieces of the truth for the sake of maintaining the status quo with our friends and family members around the dinner table. Or to keep our reputation intact so they might not think that we're one of those crazies. But friends, we must be firm in the truth. Even as Jesus here is firm in the truth, we must follow Jesus. The third thing I want you to notice is that Jesus remains faithful when Peter is faithless. Jesus remains faithful even when Peter is faithless, and that includes you and I. We can put your name where Peter is, and especially if your name is Peter, but no, just kidding. Um, But we could just insert your name here. Jesus remains faithful even when you are faithless. Peter may have denied Jesus three times, but Jesus doesn't deny Peter. Jesus doesn't deny Peter. When with a face set like a flint, Jesus draws nearer to fulfilling what he came to accomplish, Peter denies Jesus verbally but what jesus is going to do is restore peter fully he's going to at the end of john's gospel and friends we're going to see it unfold before us someone who loves peter so much that peter's denial of jesus isn't going to be the end because jesus's sacrificial death would pay for peter's sin and jesus would restore him He would say, come back into the fold. Why? Because not one that the Father has given to Jesus has been lost. You and I, like Peter, may be grieved greatly over sin that we've committed against God. And if you look at the other gospel accounts, we see Peter grieving mightily over the reality when he heard that rooster crow that he did, in fact, deny Jesus. The three times in quick succession that Jesus said he would. But, know this, with a face set like a flint, Jesus could not be deterred and he was on his way to the cross. The cross, the point in which he would pay fully for Peter's sin and your sin and my sin. He didn't stop short because of your sin. He didn't stop short because of Peter's denials. He didn't throw up his hands and said, "Well, if these people can't get it figured out, then why am I even doing this? Friends, this is how we often treat Jesus Christ in our lives. We think to ourselves, I've sinned again. I've made a mess of things, and the reality is Jesus didn't stop short because of it. He went to the cross. Fully aware of your lack of faith. Fully aware of your lack of faithfulness to Him. Fully aware of your weakness, your fickle nature, your willingness to compromise on truth. Your complete lack of ability to do anything but often deny Him. And He did not stop short of the cross. Chapter 13, Jesus says, you will deny me three times. And it happened. It didn't stop him. With a face set like flint, he went to the cross. His sacrifice is more than enough to cover all the sin that grieves you this morning. Come to Christ. Leave your sin and trust. In Christ and friends, you can fully trust Jesus. If Jesus got knocked off course by any one of these three things, or any one of these three men—in corruption, betrayal, and denial—you couldn't trust him. But friends, Jesus again is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I want to encourage you this morning. With a face that was set like a flint, Jesus could not be deterred from the thing that God had set him to accomplish. The things that he had put before him in order that we might all come to the Father and not one would be lost. Jesus Christ fulfilled all of those things perfectly. Being undeterred by the sin of men and big sin at that. Jesus Christ with a face set like flint went to the cross and he went for you and me. If you're here this morning and you think to yourself, I don't know this Jesus, I don't know who this is, I don't know this unchanging one, the creator of all things, the one who created the smiths to whom the swords were made and the spear that pierced his side and the implements of torture that were 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 uh, were inflicted upon him. Jesus Christ, a face sent like flint. And friends, the good news is that when we are in Christ, When we are in Christ, we, as God's people, when difficulty comes in many forms, we can follow Jesus by having an iron jaw, by having a face set like a flint. Friends, when difficulty and hardship and trial and suffering come your way, you can walk through those things fully well knowing that Jesus went before you in those things that his face set like a flint could not be deterred from the things that the Father had given to him. You and I can do the same. Oftentimes, we as Christians begin to think, well, I need to look weak in order that in order that, the strength of God might be on display. But I'll tell you what, when when suffering and difficulty and hardship come your way, it is a face like a flint that we are set in with Jesus Christ and follow him into. Friends, this Jesus Christ extends himself to you this morning. A loving good shepherd who has not lost one. Come to Christ and trust in Christ this morning. Know fully that in the face of betrayal, in the face of corruption, in the face of denial, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the reality of who Jesus Christ is. Would you cause us this morning to understand better the suffering that Jesus endured on our behalf so that we might be made new, so that we might be made right with the Father, so that we might come to the Father. God, change us. Cause us as your people to recognize that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And for this very reason, we can trust him fully. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.